Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace, through Christ our Lord. Amen. For those of you history buffs, you will know immediately the importance of the date, the 28th of June in the year of our Lord, 1919. It was on this date that what at that point was known as the Great War, what we call World War I, officially came to an end as the Treaty of Versailles was ratified. Something like 40 million military and civilian casualties had taken place during this war. And the negotiations for peace were extensive, and for the losing side, very costly. In fact, historians nearly all agree that the seeds of the Second World War were planted in this treaty, where Germany was forced to pay crippling reparations in order to guarantee the peace in Europe, which of course did not last. As you heard in our passage, when it was read, we also find here a treaty of sorts, not between countries, but between brothers, brothers that had become bitter rivals. The reconciliation would not be nearly as costly for Jacob as that Treaty of Versailles was for Germany. And through the Lord's providence, this actually brought an end, a lasting end, to the hostilities between Jacob and Esau, at least for as long as they both were alive. And yet from Jacob's perspective, here at the very beginning of our passage, the outcome appeared far from certain. As Esau and his army of 400 men approached. Jacob had prevailed in prayer, and now the last barrier to his peaceful return to Canaan was the reaction of his brother, who last we heard 20 years ago was making plans to kill Jacob. So let's jump into the text, and as we do, you'll find the outline in the bulletin that will follow. It has three points. I come in peace, parting is such sweet sorrow, and may he rest in peace, question mark. Kids, you can look for the words for you to listen for in their normal place. So first, I come in peace. The sun has risen, and Jacob's limping away from his wrestling match with a new name and a new reassurance, both given to him by God. But any peaceful, easy feeling he may have does not last long, because he immediately lifts up his eyes at the break of dawn and sees what he's been dreading all night, the approach of Esau with his posse. And so Jacob takes immediate action. Moses writes, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he, Jacob, divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. It was impossible for Jacob to know from this distance what Esau's intentions were. John Calvin comments, When Esau himself approaches, Jacob's terror is not only renewed but increased. It was not probable that after Esau had left his father's house and had been living as he pleased, that he had become more mild. Yet there was no hope 
in Jacob's household and all his possessions fleeing from an army on the march. This meeting was inevitable, and it would be up to the Lord to answer Jacob's prayer and to protect him and his family. But of course, Jacob's willing to help the Lord out a little bit. He divides up his wives and his children, and he arranges them in an order that clearly shows the level of his affections. First the servants and their children, then his legal yet unpreferred wife Leah with hers, and finally his favorites, Rachel and Joseph. And this division would actually serve a few purposes. First, if Esau fell immediately on the first group, then Rachel and Joseph would have the best hope of escape, however slim the chances might be. And of course, Joseph was the youngest, probably a baby at this time. Bilhah and Zilpah, along with their sons, would be the most vulnerable. And then Leah would at least have a couple of adolescent sons to join with the servants that would put up maybe a brief defense and buy precious seconds before the hordes descended on that last group. And then this would also serve a second purpose of possibly delaying Esau from acting until all three groups approached. Maybe even buying time to call him, calm him down if he were advancing in anger. For you Tolkien fans, think of how Gandalf introduces the dwarves to Beorn and the hobbits. He's hoping to charm the unsuspecting host by bringing them out in waves. But then third, this degree of approach also follows the typical custom of royal address in the ancient Near East, where the visiting dignitaries would be introduced to the king from the least to the greatest in importance. In splitting up his family this way, Jacob's entire posture was to communicate a submissive and a humble approach to his brother, signaling that he has, for his part, no violent intentions, and he not only comes in peace, but he honors Esau's superior position. But more important than all that, look at Jacob's position in line. He himself went on before them. Jacob has certainly changed since his flight to Haran 20 years ago. Gone is the scheming deceiver who seeks his own good above that of others. Instead, he plays the man. He offers himself as the first line of defense for the sake of all his family, even his slave wives and their children. And men and boys, I don't care what our culture might tell you, this is what you are for. Godly manhood means a willingness to protect and to care for the weak and the vulnerable, just like Jacob does. Jacob has no idea what, to hap- what will happen, and he has no intent to fight, but he puts himself on the front line. If Esau is thirsty for blood, he'll have to go through Jacob first. And it's especially appropriate that Jacob takes the first position, because Jacob and Jacob alone had offended Esau. 
His wives and his children had done nothing to deserve Esau's wrath. So Jacob here is taking full responsibility, come what may. So while he may have feared what Esau would do, he had the courage of his conviction to fulfill his vocation as husband and father, and if necessary, to die for the sake of his family. But he's only been made courageous because he has been the repeated recipient of God's unmerited favor. The Lord has blessed Jacob and has guarded Jacob and has kept his word to Jacob for 20 years. So Jacob was not about to give up hope now. While the circumstances appeared dire, Jacob had a promise from God that he would return to the land. So he acts in faith, moving toward Esau to seek peace. And brothers and sisters, this should be the case for everyone who believes in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our king has promised to protect us, to bring us safely into his eternal kingdom. And so we are free to face the consequences of our sins by repenting and seeking reconciliation with those we have harmed, or even, if called upon, to suffer injustice for the name of Christ. This is the power of the gospel that makes us say with the psalmist, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then look how Jacob met Esau, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Don't miss the irony here, the irony of the reversal of the blessing that Jacob had stolen. Remember, Isaac had told him, be Lord over your brothers, may your mother's sons bow down to you. And yet here we have the blessed son bowing down to his mother's son. Jacob was willing to set aside his right for the sake of peace with his brother. And let's be perfectly clear, Esau's previous murderous rage was unconscionable, it was evil, and it was entirely disproportionate to the harm Jacob had done him. It would be completely unjust for the older brother to violently exact his revenge on the younger. But Jacob didn't start by pleading his case and castigating his brother's anger. Instead, our holy forefather in the faith took the first step toward reconciliation in demonstrating his humble repentance for his part to play in this rift between the brothers. Jacob offered a soft answer in hopes of turning away wrath. So from this example, let us all learn that when we have sinned against someone else, may we first repent for our own sin without qualification before dealing with any ensuing sins that result from it. Brothers and sisters, if we desire to be peacemakers, we must be true 
and total repenters. So may it be so. So Jacob makes the overture of peace. But he could not possibly have expected the answer that the Lord was about to grant to his desperate prayer from the night before. Because he was not the only one who came in peace. We go on to read, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. While Jacob is in the middle of his demonstration of contrition and humility, before he could speak a word, Esau threw aside all dignity, all dignified behavior, and he ran to shower his brother with a ridiculous display of affection. The parallels here are are, are so palpable that I can't help but think this was in the back of Jesus' mind as he told the parable of the prodigal son, where the sinful son couldn't even get through his well-rehearsed apology before his father enveloped him in joyful tears and acceptance. This is the grace that our God has for us. And Esau is not even a believer. He's excluded himself from the covenant of grace by refusing to repent. And yet, he demonstrates forgiveness and receives his brother with giant, hairy, open arms. But this has very little to do with Esau and everything to do with the God of his fathers. Calvin again writes, that Esau meets his brother with unexpected benevolence and kindness is the effect of the special favor of God. Therefore, by this method, God proved that he has the hearts of men in his hand to soften their hardness and to mitigate their cruelty as often as he pleases. But at this point, we've gone through Genesis far enough that Neither we nor Jacob ought to be surprised. In the words of Richard Belcher, What a relief that Esau comes in peace, but more, what a marvelous indication of God's protective presence in Jacob's life in order to ensure that the covenant promises will be fulfilled. With another nod to Tolkien, we've been on a Tolkien kick in our house. The Lord is like Samwise Gamgee. He says, I made a promise, Jacob. A promise. Don't you leave him. And I don't mean to. No man, no matter how violent and how hot-tempered, no man can thwart the plan of God and the promises of the Lord to his chosen people. So church, if the grace of the God who is holy, 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 is so great that he pictures himself in the father running down the road to receive his wandering child. If his power is so great that he can even melt the hard heart of Esau toward Jacob, then let us never fear to throw ourselves on that infinite mercy. We can confess our sins to the Lord and to anyone else we have wronged without fear. Because God is faithful to his word to save us from all our sins. And on the flip side, Esau's magnanimity should shame us if we ever refuse to be reconciled to a penitent brother or sister who humbly approaches us in peace. 
Jesus tells us that peacemakers are blessed, but that those who refuse to forgive undermine their own profession of faith in the Lord's forgiveness of them. We have been forgiven, ought to forgive. And the, the narrative continues, and you, you have to kind of feel bad for Jacob's wives and children who haven't arrived yet. <laughs> they continue their courtly introduction, probably baffled by what they saw happen between the brothers, but still leery. Calvin describes it this way. Now at their first entrance, the terror of death meets them. And when they prostrate themselves in the presence of Esau, they do not know whether they are not doing homage to their executioner. But look at Esau's response to them. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servants. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. But they have nothing to fear. The peace is real, and the danger has passed. But before we continue on, I want us to notice one thing Jacob said here. And it remains the theme throughout this passage, as we'll see. In the Hebrew, Jacob literally says that God has graced him with these children. It's not only his wealth, all the flocks that he has, but his children are included in this great treasure that God has granted Jacob in exile because children are a gift and a reward from the Lord. So may we always see them and treat them as the treasures that they are. But then Esau has another question. First, who... Who are all these people? And then, what do you mean by all this company I met? Speaking about the gifts of animals that had been sent ahead. And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Esau wants to know, what's up with all the animals? And Jacob's response demonstrates, he had not merely sent this gift to get into Esau's good graces. While it's true that normal Near Eastern politeness would require them to do this dance of Esau refusing the offering and then Jacob saying, no, please take it, and Esau refusing and then eventually relenting. Jacob's urgency here actually shows us how significant it is to him that this offering is accepted. And we see this in all the different ways he speaks about it. First, as he had done in the previous chapter, where the ESV translates this, this gift as a present. In Hebrew, he calls it an offering. They're using a word that outside of Genesis, Moses only ever uses for sacrifices given in worship of the Lord. And then second, he, he urgently asks Esau to accept it. Using a word that's often used in 
the context of how priests were to receive tithes or offerings later in the Pentateuch. Third, Jacob uses a different Hebrew word that the ESV translates as accept in verse 10 when he says, you have accepted me. That verb is used throughout Leviticus to speak of how the Lord would receive proper sacrifices. Fourth, Jacob clearly ties this gift to the past history of the brothers when he calls it his blessing, the thing that Jacob had taken from Esau. Fifth, Jacob compares the red-bearded face of his apostate brother to the face of God he had just seen the night before. And sixth, Jacob says the purpose of the gift is so that Esau would show favor or grace. The same noun that we've seen in Genesis that described the Lord's disposition towards Noah and towards Abram. It's related to the verb that Jacob had used when he described how God had graced him with many children. So he put all of Jacob's words together there. And it's obvious that from Jacob's point of view, the reconciliation between the brothers would be incomplete until Esau received what Jacob had offered. In some sense, Jacob sees Esau's acceptance of Jacob and these nearly 600 animals parallel to God's acceptance of him. And we might wonder, why is this such a big deal to Jacob? Why did he reach out to Esau in the first place instead of just heading back to Canaan? Mount Seir is at the south end. He could have just entered the promised land, never had to come close to Esau. And I think it's because Jacob here is embodying the principle the Lord Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Jacob had been summoned to worship at Bethel. But before he did, he realized he had to attempt reconciliation with his brother. And only then could he go and offer his gift. So this gift that Jacob is offering, through it he's paying restitution for the wrong that he had done his brother. And it's clear that Esau also sees it it that way. When he finally relents and receives the gift, he doesn't offer anything in return. He thinks he's owed this gift. So while we may wish for Esau to be moved by this display to repent of his sins, he's still Esau. So he remains dead in his sins with a heart of stone. And though that heart of stone is softened toward Jacob, it's not broken into repentance. Jacob is going to have to content himself that as far as it depends on him, he is living at peace with all men. There's nothing more that he can do. And at least at this point, he's at peace with his brother. And I think we can learn from Jacob here. Remember that Genesis was first written for the children of Israel as they had received the law from Moses. 
And that law included the requirement that thieves pay restitution as the fruit in keeping with their repentance. That should be the attitude that we all have when we truly sorrow over our sins. Growing up as one of six kids, I couldn't tell you the number of times that one of us would do something wrong to another one and then quickly apologize. And when the offended party said, I'm telling mom, what do we respond? I said I was sorry. Isn't that enough? I'm sure that doesn't happen in any homes in this room. And unfortunately, I must tell you, brothers and sisters, that no, there are times that saying sorry is not enough. And if our response, when we are repenting to our brothers and sisters, when something further is required of us to bring that full reconciliation with someone we have harmed, if our response is to say, I said sorry, isn't that enough? then we demonstrate we have not truly repented at all. True repentance eagerly embraces, when appropriate, the consequences of making it right with those we have sinned against. Even being willing to go above and beyond what's required in love to them. Perhaps the best example of this is in the New Testament. Remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector? He made his repentance known by saying to Christ, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, going beyond what was required by the law. And he heard from Jesus the same affirmation we can say about Jacob. That salvation had come to his house since he also is a son of Abraham. So Christ Church, may we never content ourselves with the mere lip service of repentance. But from willing hearts, let us bear every necessary fruit in keeping with that repentance. And this scene also ought to give us hope. If these brothers, estranged by mutual hatred for 20 years, one of whom isn't even regenerate, if they can be reconciled after all that time, do not give up. Don't give up hope in what the Lord can do in your life through repentance and forgiveness. He can soften the hardest heart. He can bring peace out of the greatest turmoil. You can do your part and seek peace and trust him with the results. No situation is too far gone. So the peaceful reunion between the brothers brings a tear to our eye and a smile to our face. But there's a limit to how far this reconciliation can go. And we'll see that as we see that parting is such sweet sorrow. And we'll move quickly through the rest of this passage, which really mostly serves to set up what will happen in chapter 34. Verse 12. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. 
Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, Well, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Esau is in a generous mood. So he offers to lead the way for Jacob's crew back to the older brother's home. But Jacob knows that's not possible. In the potential showdown between the seed of the woman in Jacob and the seed of the serpent in Esau, the Lord had intervened to protect his chosen servant, Jacob. But returning with Esau to live with him would be like moving into the serpent's cave. One day, the serpent would strike. Jacob's life cannot be closely intertwined with his brother's without grave spiritual and probably even physical danger. And besides, he has been called by the Lord to return to Bethel and to worship there, to keep his vow that he had made. Seer is the wrong direction. Jacob must part ways here with Esau, not even accepting the offer of men to stay behind and serve as bodyguards. In the words of Richard Belcher, by distancing himself from traveling with Esau, he had the freedom to go where he needed to go. It is also important that Jacob separate his family from Esau in order to keep the, the promised line separate from the rejected line. The covenant community must not intermingle with those outside the community in case they will lose their distinct relationship to the God of the covenants. Jacob does not need the protection of Esau because he has the protection of God. And it's the same with our own relationships. The Apostle Paul warns Christians against being unequally yoked with unbelievers, which certainly includes but goes far beyond marrying them. We can love our lost family members and neighbors, but there's a limit to how closely we can walk with them, especially given the different destinations that we have. As Matthew Henry writes, it is not desirable to be too intimate with superior ungodly relations who will expect us to join in their vanities, or at least to wink at them, though they blame and perhaps mock at our religion. Such will either be a snare to us or offended with us. We shall venture the loss of all things rather than endanger our souls if we know their value rather than renounce Christ if we truly love him. If you spend your time walking closely with those headed toward hell, don't be surprised if the path starts burning your feet. We can be at peace with. We can even show love to our enemies. But only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, making them our spiritual brothers and sisters, can we join our lives closely with theirs. Jacob is Canaan-bound, and he uses the, the true excuse of the hard journey and the burdensome gaggle of children to convince Esau to, to move along. And I don't think we necessarily have to see Jacob as lying when he says he'll visit Esau at Mount Seir. He might have done it at some point that Moses doesn't record. Or he may have, as one commentator suggests, deceive Esau by deceiving himself about his future plans. 
As far as Scripture tells us, Jacob and Esau parted in peace and remained so for the rest of their lives, even reuniting to bury their father when he died. So the prophecies and the blessing that pictured Jacob's brothers bowing down to him and Esau throwing off the burden, those are going to have greater fulfillment in the descendants of these two patriarchs than we see right here. But as we move to this last, chapter, last section of chapter 33, notice what Jacob doesn't say when he parts with Esau. He doesn't come out and tell Esau that he must fulfill his word and his vow and go back to Bethel. That's why he can't go with him. And whether that was what was originally in his mind or not, we see that he doesn't tell Esau what he also doesn't do. Which leaves us here with a question. May he rest in peace? Verse 17, we read, But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. After 20 years of hard labor, a perilous flight from Laban, a sleepless night, and the overwhelming emotional meeting and parting with Esau, who can blame Jacob for pausing to take a breath? He and his family and animals all need a break, so he stops just on the east side of the Jordan River, just outside the Promised Land. However, this ends up being more than a pit stop on the way back to Bethel. Derek Kidner says this, Sukkoth was a backward step spiritually as well as geographically. It is difficult to reconcile the call to Bethel with the prolonged stay involved in building cattle sheds and a house east of the Jordan. The implied ages of Jacob's daughter and his elder sons in the next incident at Shechem show that several years were indeed spent in one or both of these places, since Dinah was evidently a child of about seven when the family left Paddan Aram. Jacob stays at Sukkoth for a long enough period of time that it made sense for him to build permanent dwellings for himself and his animals. This is the first time that Abraham or any of his descendants have had any sort of a permanent dwelling since they left, since the first patriarch left Haran. And then after resting some time across the Jordan, Jacob finally returns back to his country. And when Moses writes that he arrives safely in Shechem, that word translated safely could either refer to a place, a place name called Shalem, or be literally translated as peacefully. But either way, this is a direct reference to the interaction that, the, that Jacob had had with the Lord at Bethel. By the Lord's protection and providence, the prodigal son had indeed returned to his father's homeland in peace, just as God had promised. This is why we should pay attention when we see that his destination after Sukkoth is not Bethel, 
but a parcel of land near Shechem where he settled down. Listen to Derek Kidner again. Shechem offered Jacob the attractions of a compromise. His summons was to Bethel, but Shechem, about a day's journey short of it, stood attractively at the crossroads of trade. He was called to be a stranger and pilgrim, but while buying his own plot of land there, he could argue that it was within his promised borders. It was disobedience nonetheless. But like so much of what we've seen in Genesis and in our own lives, the disobedience is mixed with true devotion to the Lord. So while our passage ends with the question as to how secure Jacob's peaceful rest would be until he fulfilled his vow at Bethel, it does end on a positive note. Jacob reaffirms his faith in the Lord by building the altar and claiming the Lord as his own God, even assuming the name Israel that God had given him at Peniel. He calls the altar El Elohe Israel, which means God is the God of Israel. Wherever Israel is, the Lord is to be worshipped. Here again, Matthew Henry on the end of chapter 33. Israel's God is Israel's glory. Blessed be his name. He is still the mighty God, the God of Israel. May we praise his name and rejoice in his love through our pilgrimage here on earth and forever in the heavenly Canaan. So in my best Chris Taylor voice, what do we take away? I've got three questions for us to consider. One from each of our points in the outline. First, is there a broken relationship that you need to see repaired through repentance and reconciliation? First and foremost, as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, as though God were pleading through me, I implore you on his behalf to be reconciled to God. No reconciled human relationship will matter if you have been estranged from the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Jacob's gift to his brother was costly, but it helped seal the peace between him and his brother. However, there is no price that you or I can pay to dissuade God's righteous wrath against our sin. Thanks be to God that the Lord Jesus Christ paid the highest cost by laying down his life so that through saving faith in him, all your sins may be forgiven and you may be at peace with God himself. If you have not yet, call on his name in faith and be saved. And if you have been reconciled to the Lord, you are called to be reconciled to your brother. Whether as the offending party, or the one that's been sinned against. As far as it is up to you, do what it takes to pursue peace with all men. Second question. Is it time for a righteous parting of the ways? Are you walking too closely with someone who does not love the Lord? And so do you need to break off so that you may pursue heaven more freely. Do not delay. And finally, 
Have you settled short of full obedience? Is there any area of your life where you are, as it were, only a day's journey away, but you're content with mostly doing what the Lord requires? The peace that you experience will be on shaky ground until you uh, will be on shaky ground as long as you stop short of fully pursuing righteousness. For the glory of Christ, for the good of yourself and those around you. Don't stop now. But since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He brought Jacob safely home, and he will do the same for us. So may we each run the race of obedient faith until we run into his open arms. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, please.